Genesis chapter 1, we'll look at verses 3 through 25 this morning. I'm going to start off by making a statement that I cannot prove theologically, but I think that everyone will agree with this statement. And I'm going to say this statement because we're in the book of Genesis, and I just think it's important, um, that possums, um, possums are a direct result of the fall. I cannot prove that theologically, but I think we can all agree that possums are a result of Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. Now, I have a ton of possum stories, but let me just tell you, they gross me out. I, even if they're dead on the side of the road and I see one, like, this hair stands up on my arms. Uh, I hated that when growing up in eastern North Carolina, they would get in our trash cans and they would try to mess with our dogs. And it's just, just nasty, disgusting creatures. Um, and I have a lot of different possum stories. I have one where one died under my house and I had to go and get it. Um, that was gross. I have uh, several where one got up in a tree in our house and we ended up pulling the tree and slinging one across our yard. Um, but the most, the craziest possum story I have happened when I was a senior in uh, college. I was living in Wake Forest, North Carolina. I went to Southeastern Theological Seminary there and. As I was a senior in college, we were on our way, a group of us, to a get-together, and we were sort of like caravanning to this, to this place where we were going, and uh, we were behind, me and a group of guys, we were behind these girls, and uh, they, we, we noticed right before we get to the house that we're going to, they slam on brakes, and then they all get out of the car, and one girl is like holding her mouth, and just, she's going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, and so we get out of the car, and we realize they're standing over these baby possums that are scattered alive all over the road. And they're sort of like trying to crawl and they're just like new, like just nasty baby things. And so there's this one girl in the group and there's always that one person in the group that's super compassionate about everything, like dangerously compassionate. She's like, what are we going to do with these baby possums? And we're like, I'm like, get a shovel and we'll just clear, you know, there's six of them right here. We can just take care of future problems in people's yards. Like, I'm, I have no, you know, I have no compassion over these things. She's like, no, we've got to do something, y'all. We can't leave these baby, you know, just like. And so then somebody has like a cardboard box in there, like it was like a FedEx box or something in their car. And they pull it out and we scoop these possums up. And there's no plan, right? So what are we going to do? So let's just take it to the house and we'll figure it out. So we get to the house and we start trying to decide, okay, what are we going to do with these baby possums? These little things that can't even open their eyes, these nasty things. And um, you got to remember, like, this is before, like, iPhones and Siri. And we could just find quick things to, to did I even say that wrong? I don't even know. Um, and so we, um, is it Siri or Siri? What, how do you say it? Siri. Siri. Thanks. Um, <laughs> And so we, we get a phone book out, and for the millennials, it's like a real book, and it's got yellow pages and white pages, um, and we turn to the yellow pages, which is more your informational things, white pages are for, um, and so, uh, sorry, you, uh, and so we, um, we pull it out, and we find in the yellow pages the possum lady, and yeah, and we find the possum lady, and we say, we have this situation. We told her the situation. She's like, oh, I will be right over. And she drives right, I and mean, she's at our house in like six minutes. 
she's got an Astro van, like one of those old vans and like minivans. And she comes out and she's got a t-shirt on and uh, these like jean shorts. And she's like, where are they? Where are they? And we tell her and they're in this box. And she goes, oh, my babies, my babies. And these things are nasty, y'all. She picks them up and then she starts putting them down the front of her shirt, all right? And then she leaves. And we're all, even the compassionate girl was like, that's weird, right? We're just sitting, that is weird, all right? And, and, and we're sitting there, like, just blown away by this. Now, I tell you that story because I think we can all agree that she may have misused creation. Can we agree on that? She may have misunderstood, like, God's design and God's purpose with animals and how we interact with animals and human beings and all that stuff. So, Uh, I do tell you that story because even though that's a drastic story, and hopefully you've not done that, if you have, let's talk after the service and can provide some solid biblical counseling. um, But but maybe uh, we've had scenarios in our life where we can say we've misused creation. I think every single person in this room, at some point in our life, we've taken something that God has given us in creation, and we've misused it. We've done it through eating. Maybe we've eaten too much. We've done it through drinking. Maybe we've drank too much. We've done it with a lot of different things. And every time we do it, it's, we're taking something that God has given us for a reason, and we've used it to build ourselves up rather than looking to our creator. And so the question then is, how do we see creation rightly? Better yet, how does God want us to enjoy his creation in a way that glorifies him. So what we find in Genesis chapter 1, we said this last week, we found that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all uniquely and creatively designed each and every single one of us. And, and we said in the beginning, when he created it, in the beginning we said was a time in which human beings would dwell and live on this earth. And the whole purpose was that, so that God would send his son, Jesus Christ, to be born as a man, who live in this time and space that we dwell, and to live a perfect sinless life, and to die on the cross for our sins, and to resurrect from the grave, and give us a chance an opportunity to know our creator. We said that's the whole purpose, it's the whole premise of all of scripture, and it's really the whole purpose of Genesis chapter one. But now what we're gonna see in verses three through 25 is this beautiful rhythmic design of his creation. And there's a purpose then in that that I wanna show you. And so we're gonna read Genesis one. I'll read in verses three through 25. The word of God says this. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was, what's the word? Good. And God separated the light from the darkness and called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters were under the expanse of the waters that were above the expanse. You got that? Good. Um, uh, and it was so, and God called the expanse heaven, which is, is literally it's like saying the sky. It, that's what he means when he says heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and then let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth. And the waters and, uh, that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was 
Good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing in which their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens and separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. That's an awesome verse. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give them light, uh, to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of heaven to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and the night, and to separate light from the darkness. And God saw that it was. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with the swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly over the earth across the expanse of heaven, of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and each winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to, it, to their kind and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, I could go through verse by verse this chapter and basically say what we just read. It's, it's very self-explanatory. And so rather than doing that, what I want to do is, is rather than go through verse by verse of what just happened, um, I want to bring out a major theme that kept showing up. Um, so admittedly, this is not going to be my most verse by verse sermon. What I want to do is just pull out a major theme. What's the phrase that we kept repeating? God saw that it was good. So if we read this phrase, we want to understand, as we read this phrase, how to understand chapter 1. Because if you read chapter 1 and then read chapter 2, it will almost seem inconsistent. Because here's the thing, you'll read chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, it will show you the account on which God created man. And then you'll go to chapter 2, and then there's another account of how God created man. So it sounds as if there are two separate accounts of God creating men. And, and women. And so some people read it, and some people actually read it that way, that, okay, there's two creation accounts. There's one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 2. But let me tell you, that is not the case at all. It's the same account. It's just Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 were written differently. Chapter 1 is a narrative and a celebration of God's order and how he created all things. Chapter 1 is actually somewhat written as a poem, or in other terms, a spoken word, or like a rap. It kind of keeps 
God did this, and he saw that it was good. God did this, and saw that it was good. And he's like, and you will like it. That's what he's saying. It, he did this, and it's good, and you will like it. Lucky for you, that's what I like. That's what he's saying. Genesis chapter 1 is not meant primarily to be a historical documentation of facts. Rather, it's meant to be a poetic celebration of who the creator is. That, that doesn't make the, the things in chapter 1 unfactual. It's just more about celebration than documentation. You guys tracking with that? And so this happens in, in the Old Testament. In, in, in Exodus, for instance, Exodus 14, you have the account, the historical narrative of Moses fleeing from Pharaoh through the Red Sea. And then in Exodus 15, the very next chapter, you have Miriam's song about what just happened. So one, both are narrative, but one's documentation, and the other one's more celebration of what happened. Uh, Another example would be um, Judges chapter 4. You see um, Barak and Deborah, and they're in a war together, and then what happens next in Judges chapter 5 is Deborah singing a song recounting what just happened. So one is celebrate, one's uh, documentation, the other is celebration. And so here in this case, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the same thing's happening. Genesis chapter 1 is a celebration of God's creation. And then Genesis chapter 2 is just recounting what happened in more specific detail. And so... Uh, This leads us to a bigger question because what I'm trying to show you, rather than just going verse by verse through each thing and, okay, on this day he did this and this, what I want to show you is really how it all fits together. Because if you don't understand how it fits together, it's going to mess up your view of it. Because uh, I don't want you to just read chapter 1 and think, okay, this is all just factual, just information that's just thrown at me. No, it's to be written as a poem or a celebration of what God's doing, which, which leads us to a bigger question. Sometimes people, as they read Genesis chapter 1, they get caught up in the science of it. Meaning, a lot of times when people read it, and they'll say, okay, are these seven literal days or not? Or does each day maybe represent millions of years, and maybe God used things like evolution as a part of creation, or maybe there's a mixture of the two. So, so, so sometimes people get caught up. And so a lot of Christians get really passionate about these issues. Some who would argue that uh, the earth is really young, which would mean they believe that these are literal seven days, um, they look at those who believe that the, wor- the, the world is old, meaning they see the world as, could be millions of years. Sometimes they can look at the other, one can look at the other, and those who would argue for an old earth can accuse the young earth people for being ignorant because they just trust the Bible and they ignore science. And the other, the other side would be uh, the young earth will treat the old earth people like they are atheistic heretics who don't trust the infallible word of God. But I don't think it has to be this severe of an argument. And here's why. I don't think you can read Genesis 1 and have a slam dunk conclusion either way. I don't think you can read Genesis 1 and say, okay, it's absolutely this. I I just don't think you can do that. Because Moses, when he wrote this, his goal was not to get in the nuances of creation versus evolution. 
The primary goal of Genesis 1 is not how he created the heavens and the earth, but rather that he did create the heavens and the earth. And then the goal then is to explain his glory through uh, that he did create the heavens and the earth. And here's the thing. You can be a faithful, Bible-believing Christian and believe one or the other. And you're just saying, oh, he's just being a wimp and not going to answer what he believes. Well, you can email me later and we'll talk about it. But both positions have been held throughout the history of the church. Several of the early church fathers living in the first 500 years after Jesus lived, believed. in Genesis 1 represented a long period of time and not just a literal week. Later, others uh, took a more literal interpretation. Maybe you are one or the other. Maybe you don't care. But here's the thing. When I get to heaven and God tells me that the earth, either he tells me the earth is millions of years or thousands of years, my, my faith is not going to be shaken either way. It's not going to be where he tells me, okay, it's this, and I'm going to be like, oh, my gosh, I can't even believe I'm in heaven with you right now. You've just fooled me all this time. It's just not going to do that. And it shouldn't be a bother to any of us, really. And I would say if you choose to study this deeper, you should do so with humility. But do not use Genesis 1 as a definite answer of how old the earth is because it wasn't written to tell us that. The purpose of Genesis 1 is to show that God created everything and everything that he created was good. So can we agree to move on? Good. Good. Um, So if we can start with the beginning and say, okay, in the beginning means the beginning of time as we know it, the beginning of time and space where humans would dwell, then then we later see in Genesis chapter 1 that not only is everything he created is good, but he's given man and woman dominion over everything. We have, to understand, we have to assume then that when he says it was created as good, it was given as good for us. In other words, it's like he's saying, I love you and care about you so much that I, I will make where you live and dwell a good place. Now, there's a lot of implications that we can talk about when we see that God created everything and that everything he created is good. But let me just start with how creation and that concept helps us not just understand who God is, but also better explain who he is to other people. So let me give you a practical um, application to that. Parents, for those of you who are parents, and those of you who are not, one day the Lord wills that you are a parent, and you're struggling to share the gospel with your kids. You're struggling with where to begin. May I suggest start Here in Genesis 1. Start with the concept that God created everything and everything that he created was good. And I think this is good because growing up in the church, like um, for me, like when people would share the gospel with kids, it always started with like the bad news. It was always like, hey, you know why you can't obey mommy and daddy? You know why you can't get along with your siblings? You know why, you know, you, 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 um, you can't clean your room when we ask you to. It's because you're a sinner, right? 
And there's another story of another of, of brothers that didn't get along. Cain and Abel, ever heard of them? And the reason why they didn't get along is because they're sinners, right? And it just starts with this. Now, I, I agree. Everyone needs to hear that they're sinners and need a Savior. I totally theologically believe that. And to preach the gospel, you have to say that. But maybe that's not the best starting point, okay? Because the starting point, it ends up being like this. Like, okay, you're a sinner, but Jesus loves you because we sang that in church. We sang Jesus loves his little children, all the children in the world, red and yellow, black and white. They're precious in the sight. But if you're a sinner, you're going to hell. So figure those two things out, right? And then also, um, mommy and daddy are going to heaven. And so you, you definitely want to be in heaven with mommy and daddy. You don't want to be separated from them forever. And then what happens is they trust in an idea of an alternative to going to hell. Just pray and receive Christ because I don't want God to be mad at me and I want to be with mom and dad forever. And so that's what it ends up being is the gospel presentation. So maybe um, there's a better approach with starting explaining the gospel with your kids. And so if I would say, if you want to start explaining to the, the gospel with your kids, take them, first of all, to Pelican's Snowballs. And here's why I say that. Like, I grew up as a kid and we had slush puppies. Anybody remember slush puppies? They were at Zip Mart. Remember Zip Mart? Like Zip Mart had a slush puppy machine, and it has two flavors, red, not even cherry. I think it was like red and blue, right? <laughs> you know? And then if you got creative, you mixed both, and you have purple, right? And so now I tell my kids, hey, I grew up with these two flavors, and that's how I knew that God loved me. But now, look, God has revealed himself more over time. And he's given us pelicans, which has hundreds of flavors, which means there's so many different options, which means, and this is what I want to tell my kids when they say, why are there all these different flavors? No one's going to like toothpaste-flavored slushies, right? No one's going to like that. Somebody likes that, boys. I don't know who they are. But God, in his love, knows that they like that. And so through his sovereignty, he created men who would create that flavor. So when they taste that, they know, wow, something is better than me that's out there. <laughs> and that's the whole purpose of it. And so when, I, when they taste those flavors and they taste the unique uh, options that they have, the whole point of it is, is Genesis chapter 1. What God has created is good, and it's good so that you would know that he is good. Not everything's to be tasted so that it would end on itself and that it would ultimately bring you joy and satisfaction. No, it's to bring you to the one who can give you joy and satisfaction. Every single one of us in this room needs to hear the gospel that way because it helps us see God has been pursuing me since the day I was born. God has been pursuing me since I had taste buds, since I chose Captain Crunch over frosted mini wheats, when I chose those things, and then peanut butter Captain Crunch, like all these things that God has put in your life to know when you put this in your mouth, it's good, and you realize that I'm good, and I'm pursuing you. So it shows he's wooing you from the very beginning, when you began to develop taste, when you began to look at the ocean and wonder at amazement, when you began to marvel at its greatness. All of us have specific taste and specific things. And all of those to show that your heart is being pursued by your creator. Some of you like classic country music. Some of you don't like country music at all. Some of you like the newer country music. Bro country. If that's you, I can't prove that you're God's elect, but I'm just praying. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. 
take that out of the thing. Uh, <laughs> but if you have a taste in this room, if God's given you something that you enjoy, he's given that to you so that it would in turn lead you into greater affection for him. The point of creation is for us to see that he is good. Even the one who rejects Jesus Christ doesn't just reject Jesus. They are rejecting the light of God that has been shown to them through his creation. When they enjoy this thing that God's given them, they don't in turn look to the one who gave it to them. That's the problem with the world. We don't want to look at the creator. We just look at the creation. And we want to find our hope in all these created things. And guess what? That nothing has changed. And this is what happened in the very beginning with the fall. And we'll see that in a few weeks. This is even what happened when, when Paul, when he's communicating to the Romans. Rome was a place that Paul always wanted to see the gospel take, have influence in Rome. Because the gospel at that time, or um, Rome at that time, was the center of the world. If Paul could get the gospel to the Romans, the, the gospel would then uh, shift downstream and be able to affect so many other people. And so Paul, as he writes to the Romans, he's writing to them this, this plea for them not to love creation more than the creator. And because the Romans, they just took whatever they wanted. They said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. It doesn't matter what you do to your bodies. We're just going to take everything we can. We're going to take it from the poor. We're going to take it from the downtrodden. We're going to rule the world, and it doesn't matter who we affect. And that was their mindset. And so when Paul writes to the Romans, he writes in such a way in Romans chapter 1 that he's pleading with them, hey, you're never going to find satisfaction in this in creation. You're only going to find your satisfaction in the creator. I'll read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. I think it would be helpful for us to see as Paul writes this. It's going to really mirror a lot of things we just read in Genesis 1. But he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? He says, because God has shown it to him. How has he shown it to him? He says, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, even since the creation of the world, in the things that he that have been made, so they are without what? Excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or uh, as God or give thanks to him, because they became futile in their thinking. And foolish hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. How how they become fools? He says in verse twenty three, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged. The truth of God for a lie. What's the lie? They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They misused creation. They worshiped the created thing rather than the creator. Let me tell you why that's so important. If you've ever struggled with the idea that says, okay, God loves everyone. But we know not everyone is going to heaven. So how do we reconcile that? How do people that he loves go to hell? Does it make sense? That's the problem that many people have with Christianity. But I will say, God loves 
everyone, but he loves everyone in a specific way. And I'll, I'll say it this way. He loves everyone through something that is called common grace. Common grace means we get to live on this earth. Even as even non-believers, people who don't believe in Jesus, they get to live on this world, earth for a season, and they, they don't immediately get what they deserve, which is hell. Meaning you get to live on this earth, and you get to eat God's food that he provides. You get to live on this earth, and you get to drink God's drink that he provides. You get to breathe God's air. This is a blessing for everyone because we don't immediately get what we deserve. But God creating everything as good shows us that he loves everyone. He loves us because he, we didn't immediately get what we deserve. He, we get the good things that he offers us. And Romans 1 says, and because of that, all of us are without excuse. So that's God's common grace. Now, God's sovereign grace is, is different. God's sovereign grace is, means he chooses you before the foundation of the world. And through choosing you through the foundation of the world, he gives you the gift of faith. And by giving you the gift of faith, then you recognize that Jesus Christ lived the life that you should have lived, died the death that you should have died, rose from the grave, and conquered the penalty that we deserved. And through Jesus Christ, we get salvation. That's sovereign grace that's given to God, the ones that God has chosen to be believers. But that's not given to everybody. If, if you have faith in Christ, it was a gift. It was given to you. That's what Paul says. By faith, you're a believer. Um, and that's given to those that God seeks after and sought after and bought you by the, uh, his blood. But common grace is different. Common grace is everybody. It doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven, but he's just showing you God loves you, and this is why, because he puts you on this earth that's good, and he's doing that to woo you into a relationship with him. You can be an atheist if you want to, but if you eat, it's because God gave you food. If you drink, it's because God gave you a drink. If you breathe air, it's God's air. And if you have no intention of the things that God is giving you and using them for, your glory, for his glory, you're stealing it because you have no intention of giving it back. It's just for you. It's just for you. And so creation was not meant to be something that would ultimately satisfy us. Creation was given in the beginning a place where humans would dwell, and we would dwell in this place to prove that we, that we can know our creator. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book called Mere Christianity. It's a great book if you are here in this room and you've never been to church in your life or didn't grow up in church and you're a skeptic of Christianity. Look, I understand all of the arguments that you could pose with me today, but I would say Mere Christianity is a great book if you want to understand that. And uh, Tim Keller's Reason for God, great resources on uh, how to wrestle through the topic of faith and Christianity. Um, But in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he says this, Very good argument for the existence of God. He says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such thing as sex. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation explanation is that I was made for for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, well... Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. 
Friends, because creation exists to point us to our creator, we cannot find ultimate satisfaction in it. Creation gives us pleasure, but as C.S. Lewis says, the pleasure that we receive is only to be a taste of what we would receive in our creator. And so there's a couple of responses we can have in terms of God's creation. And if we land on one side, we'll indulge in creation and believe it's all about us. And if we land on the other side, we can enjoy creation in a way that causes us to have a greater affection of our creator. But a lot of it really rests on how we see the Bible and how we understand Moses' intent in Genesis chapter 1. And I would argue, and this is going to sound weird, okay? I would argue that you could see it as a, like a dog or like a cat. Okay, let me explain. Last week, I shared with you that our family has one pet, okay? And I'm not going to say we'll never have another one or whatever because that got me in trouble last time. I, said, I also said we would never have a pet inside, but look where we are. Um, but I share with you that we have a cat, and my boys named the cat, and they've never seen Hunger Games because that would just be really inappropriate for a 10 and 5-year-old. But some reason, they came up with the name Katniss Comet Tugwell. That's my cat's name, Okay. Yeah, thanks. Um, and, uh, and so, but I said this at the nine. I'm going to say it with my wife here. I've had animals my whole life, and I am more of a dog person personally, okay? More of a dog person, all right? And there's a reason why, because they, I think dogs are just better. Like, they just, they just love you better, and they don't demand your affection. They, 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 they want your affection. They don't, like, have this cocky attitude that cats have and like this sort of entitlement that cats have right and so so here here's the difference and and here's here's my point a dog says and the way the dog views you is going to be different than the way a cat views you a dog says you pet me you feed me you shelter me you love me you must be god right so a dog's going to treat you like you are my master but a cat sees it different Cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me. I must be God. <laughs> That's different, right? Very, very different. Now, I say that because some of us see creation in the way that a dog sees it. You realize that creation was given to you to see that he is good. Others might see creation as a cat sees it, to see that, okay, God created all this, so it must be about me. The world must be about me. Now, most of you wouldn't say, okay, the world's about me and it's about God, but, but here's how you know if you see it as a dog or a cat. It's the way that you live your life and how you treat God's creation. And when I say how you treat God's creation, I'm not talking about uh, environmentally consciousness or uh, recycling or avoiding pollution. All those are all great things that we should strive for. But what I'm really asking is a bit bigger question. How do we treat the things that God has given us? Because the things that God has given us were not to be made to end on themselves. They weren't made to bring ultimate joy and satisfaction. Only and only a relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ will bring you ultimate joy and satisfaction. It really comes down then, as God gives us good things, to how we steward what he's given us to show whether or not we see it's all about God or it's all about us. 
God's intent in creation is for us to see his goodness. Therefore, our goal is to take what is given to us and use it to glorify him. So if you want to evaluate that question seriously, how we treat God's creation, we have to ask ourselves questions like this. How do you spend your money? Do you use your money to further the gospel, to advance God's kingdom, or do you use it for yourself? We have to ask ourselves like, questions like this. How do we treat, treat food? Do we treat food as this is God giving you something to live and to enjoy, which would allow you to have greater affection to him? Or do you use food as an escape? Do you use food as a comfort? We have to ask ourselves questions like, how do we view relationships? Do relationships just serve to meet my needs? Or do relationships serve to build gospel community and to further the gospel? We have to ask ourselves how we even treat our children. Are children given to us to idolize, to live vicariously through, to control, to overly protect, to shelter? Or would we given our children to steward and find every opportunity to support and love and nurture our children in a way that they would see Christ? My kids aren't my kids. God gave them to me to steward. I love my kids on this earth, but God gave them to me as a gift to steward. And so I'm going to take that as a stewardship opportunity. My wife is my wife on earth, but she is God's daughter. And God has given her to me to steward so I can love her. My money is not my money. God's given me an income so that I would steward it well to further and advance the gospel. The food that I was given was given to me so I can survive. And as Jesus prays, give me your daily bread. It was the daily bread that I'm given to to be thankful and live. And not only that, he gave me a specific flavor and a taste so that I would know that he's good and that he loves me in the same way to enjoy and to further the gospel. But it's not to be my comfort. My wife can't be my comfort. My kids can't be my comfort. You can't be my comfort. That's not how it works. It wasn't made for that. Everything that God has given us is so that we would see that he is good. But nothing he has given us is the ultimate prize besides himself. Christ is the ultimate treasure that we must rest in our satisfaction and joy. And once we do that, Integrity Church, once we do that, every treasure on earth is fading in comparison to him. Because he's our true prize. He was meant to be our true prize. And so this morning, wherever you are, maybe you've just come here and this is the first time you've been to church in a long time. We're just glad that you're here. Maybe you've never been to church. This is your first time. We're just glad that you're here. And maybe you say, I I don't believe. I don't believe in what we just heard. I don't believe in the gospel and Jesus and all these things. Listen, perhaps God in his kindness, as you read Genesis chapter 1, you would just recognize that God gave you this world to live in, to enjoy, but not to indulge in, but to enjoy in a way that would point you to his lordship. And in his lordship, in him being the God of the universe, in him being the Lord of your life, you would find the joy that you're looking for in creation, which will never satisfy you. This is my hope this morning that if you're not a believer and you're seeing God's creation as a a way that he has uh, uh, called you to himself, that this morning would be the time that you would repent of your sins and to submit to to his lordship. You would ask the Lord to forgive you and that you would surrender to him and that he would save you.
That's my hope this morning. And for those of you who do believe, who are here gathered together to worship King Jesus, my, my prayer is this, that you would evaluate your heart and say, what part of creation do I idolize and hang on to? What part of creation am I trying to find my satisfaction and joy in? And you know, idols can be interesting things. Like they're not always things like graven images that we see on the side of the road. They're not always start with bad things. Idols can be start with good things that take the place of God, which makes them bad things, which makes them things that will never bring satisfaction and joy in our life. And so this morning, if you've got idols in your life or you're finding creation, joy in the creation rather than the creator, my hope is that you would repent this morning and that you would ask the Lord to show you what that is and that you would confess that to Christ. Maybe you would need to confess that to another believer so they can walk through life with you in a way that would help you and hold you accountable. And so this morning, my hope is that we would just see creation as a way that glorifies God and we see it as a way that he is calling us closer to himself. God help us. Let's pray.